Settlement to Superpower, Introduction, Episode 5, Bloody Mary. So hello everybody, and welcome back to From Settlement to Superpower. Our last episode ended off with the ambitious Duke of Northumberland scheming to increase his own power as well as that of the Protestants through changing the line of succession. As things stood, the Catholic Princess Mary was first in the dying King Edward's line of succession, and Northumberland knew good and well that if the staunchly Catholic princess acceded to the throne, both he and his precious reformation would be persona non grata in her new order of things. Edward shared Northumberland's fears for the fate of the Reformation, and together the two of them drew up the devise for the succession, wherein Edward excluded both of his sisters from the succession on grounds of illegitimacy, so that the succession would fall to Lady Jane Grey, his learned Protestant cousin through the Duke of Suffolk, who was, very conveniently, also betrothed to Northumberland's son, Guildford Dudley. Although Mary was declared by Parliament on two separate occasions to be next in line for the throne, King Edward and Northumberland thought that the religious issue would be sufficient to persuade the Protestant nobles to back this coup. Northumberland had hoped that the by now rapidly deteriorating Edward would survive long enough for his device to be ratified by Parliament, which he had called for September 18th. If Parliament would ratify the proclamation, then there would be no contesting its legality. And indeed, there is little doubt that the pliant and Protestant Parliament would have ratified the device if only they had been given the chance. But unfortunately for Northumberland and the Protestants, it was not to be. On the evening of the 6th of July, 1533, Edward breathed his last prayer. I am faint, Lord have mercy upon me and take my spirit. And just like that, the reign of the second Josiah had come to an end, nipped in the bud by human frailty and mortality. The council attempted to keep the news secret until Jane's accession to the throne would be a fait accompli. But then as now, leakers were a thing, and within a day, news got out to the streets. The council sprung into action immediately, with two main goals. The first to crown Jane as queen with all due haste, and the second to apprehend the now very dangerous Mary and to take her into custody, where she would be unable to contest the stolen succession. The council, however, underestimated the Princess Mary. The council immediately sent out a small force under Sir Robert Dudley, Guildford's, or perhaps we should say King Guildford Dudley's brother, to apprehend Mary and bring her back to London. When they arrived at Mary's residence, however, they were met with the unpleasant news that Mary had been one step ahead of their game, and had secretly fled to Norfolk as soon as she realized that her younger brother was dying. Mary was now at large, and she apparently had way more shrewdness in her than the council had previously given her credit for. Putting Mary aside, however, Northumberland and the council had to crown Jane, who by the way I should mention was only 16 years old at the time, as soon as possible. On July 10th, she came via barge to the Tower of London, and was there crowned Queen Jane I of England, 
when one man, Gilbert Potter, tried to incite the people to resist, he was seized and on Northumberland's orders had both his ears torn out at the roots. The next day, on the 11th, the council received a message from the defiant Princess Mary, who had been in the meanwhile rallying her supporters in Norfolk. In a remarkably bold assertion of her rights, which is made even more remarkable when we consider that the Princess Mary was a woman in 16th century England, she upbraided the council for not informing her of her brother's death, and let them know in no uncertain terms that she knew exactly what they were up to, but was willing to offer them pardon if they swore fealty to her. It was at this moment that the council's morale began to waver, and it only went downhill from here. Northumberland set out immediately, and within two days had a force of some 1,100 men, with which he intended to apprehend Mary, whose own forces were growing rapidly by the day. All the cities in East Anglia were declaring for Mary and sending her troops, and morale in her camp was soaring high. The crucial turning point came when a fleet of 900 men sent by Northumberland to arrest Mary actually defected to her side. Lady Jane's father, the Duke of Suffolk, was by now compelled to bar the gates of the Tower of London in order to prevent the panicked councillors from fleeing and declaring for Mary, who by now had secured the allegiance of Oxford and Sussex. Things were now very clearly falling apart for Northumberland, Suffolk, and Lady Jane. Desperate to save their own skins, the council revolted. They were led by the earls of Arundel and Pembroke, who indeed had the most to prove to Mary. Arundel was Jane's uncle by marriage, and Pembroke was Jane's sister's father-in-law. These two nobles led the council in revolt against Northumberland on the 18th, vilifying the unpopular Northumberland as a bloodthirsty schemer who would get them all killed for his own advancement. The council was suitably impressed, and they immediately acclaimed Mary as their rightful queen, a change which was announced on the street of London amidst scenes of great jubilation. The news of the council's defection soon reached Northumberland, who was leading his forces in Cambridge. It was now clear to all that his great gambit had failed, and that his only hope for survival was to throw himself on the Queen's mercy. At five o'clock that afternoon, he personally declared Mary Queen, with tears of sorrow streaming down his cheeks. Two days later, the glad tidings reached Mary, who was overwhelmed with joy at her seemingly miraculous victory. She ordered Arundel, who had brought her the good news, to arrest Northumberland on charges of high treason. The next day, Arundel appeared in Cambridge and took the pitiful Northumberland into custody, while poor young Jane, an innocent pawn in the intrigues of her elders, wrote to her father, the Duke of Suffolk. Out of obedience to you and my mother, I have grievously sinned and offered violence to myself. Now do I willingly, and obeying the motions of my own soul, relinquish the crown and endeavor to solve those faults created by others. Her and her husband's parents had recklessly gambled on the lives of their children, and now those children would have to pay the price. 
That week, there were two processions which entered the city of London, one of glory and the other of disgrace. On the 25th of July, the much-despised Northumberland was brought back to the city as a prisoner and a rebel. Riding through the streets on horseback alongside his captor, the Earl of Arundel, Northumberland was pelted with rotten fruit and taunts from a crowd of commoners, most notably from the now earless Gilbert Potter, as well as several women who waved handkerchiefs stained with Somerset's blood. Truly, what goes around comes around. Shortly thereafter, Northumberland was tried for high treason before Parliament. It was an open and shut case. Northumberland was found guilty and was sentenced to death. The Duke did not die with dignity. Desperate to save his life, the arch-reformationist first publicly repudiated his Protestant faith, and then wrote a groveling letter to Mary pleading to be spared the headsman's axe. An old proverb there is, and that most true, that a living dog is better than a dead lion. Oh, that it would please her good grace to give me life, yeah, the life of a dog, that I might but live and kiss her feet. But it was all to no avail. Although Mary's treatment of most of the plotters, including Lady Jane and Suffolk, was remarkably lenient, the devious Northumberland would have to go. On August 22, 1553, John Dudley, formerly Duke of Northumberland, was beheaded on Tower Hill, unmourned and unloved by the people. Mary, meanwhile, entered London in ecstatic triumph, along with her younger sister Elizabeth and thousands of followers and attendants. The church bells tolled, the cannons roared, and trumpets blared. As Mary approached the Tower of London, a small group of prisoners presented themselves to her and knelt. These were her partisans, the bedraggled remnants of the Catholic faction, including the Duke of Norfolk and Stephen Gardiner. She kissed each of them, declaring, These are my prisoners, and just like that, they were free to go, with Norfolk restored to his titles. Mary realized two things. The first was that most of this involved in this bungled coup attempt were not really culpable and were merely pawns of Northumberland, who was now thankfully out of the way. And the second thing which she realized was that there was no better way to start off her reign than with a public display of clemency. And so, almost all of the nobles were allowed to go scot-free, including Suffolk, Lady Jane's father. Jane and Guildford themselves, however, were kept confined to the tire, although Mary strongly resisted the pressure placed on her to execute the pair of youths. It would not be until a year later, when some noble rebels declared for the imprisoned Jane, that Suffolk, Guildford, and Lady Jane Grey would finally be executed. This is one of the many great paradoxes of Mary's reign. The queen who repressed the English Protestants so brutally that she came to be known as Bloody Mary was in fact a woman of extremely merciful and sensitive disposition. As a teenager, she doted excessively on her baby brother Edward and was broken-hearted when he turned his back on her on account of her Catholic faith. Mary remained convinced for the rest of her life that her sweet little brother never himself 
held any sort of animus towards her, and any coldness he may have showed her was entirely the fault of the corrupting Protestant advisers of his regency. In Mary's eyes, all of the difficulties her life had thrown at her were the fault of the Protestants, and she was not really wrong when you think about it. The annulment, her and her mother's banishment from court, her demotion from heir to bastard, the devise for the succession, all of these attacks on her person and status were in fact directly traceable to the Protestant Cromwell and Northumberland. With the relationship as fraught as this one, it should not surprise us that the one group to which the otherwise merciful Mary held no pity whatsoever was the Protestants, who were not only heretics, but also dangerous political enemies. Mary was determined that her reign would see the full restoration and reconciliation of the Catholic Church and England, and the complete extirpation of Protestantism from her borders. The man she chose to assist her in this endeavor was another English Catholic with a score to settle, Cardinal Reginald Pole. At the outset of King Henry VIII's reign, the Poles were one of the most elite noble houses in all England, with the matriarch of the house being the Countess of Salisbury, Margaret Plantagenet, daughter of George Plantagenet, the infamous Duke of Clarence. She was a niece of both King Edward IV and Richard III, and was closely connected to the Staffords through marriage. The family's Yorkist roots were something Henry never lost sight of, and he distrusted the Poles from day one of his reign. In 1538, following the Catholic uprising in the north of England, and our Reginald's ecclesiastical attacks on the king's marriage to Anne Boleyn and break with the church, Cromwell accused the Poles of plotting the king's overthrow, and completely decimated the family. Reginald's oldest brother was beheaded. His mother, Margaret Pole, was brutally hacked to death by an inept executioner, and Geoffrey Pole, Reginald's last brother, was imprisoned and suffered a nervous breakdown before going into exile. Only Reginald, who was safely abroad, escaped the destruction wreaked by Cromwell on his family, and you can bet your bottom dollar that he had no tender feelings for the Protestants who had eradicated his family. Now he was back, and he and Mary immediately set to work restoring England to the one true Catholic faith. The first thing they did was restore all the images, relics, and altars in every church in England. Parliament was convened, and Mary had them overturn everything. The Act of Supremacy and Edward's religious laws were repealed, and the Six Articles and Heresy Laws were reintroduced. Those Protestant leaders who hadn't fled were rounded up and arrested. Legislatively speaking, in a span of a few months, Mary had eradicated 20 years' worth of Reformation, and England was, on the surface at least, as institutionally Catholic as it had been back in 1529. The next move Mary made to secure English Catholicism was her marriage in 1554 with the Crown Prince of Spain, later King Philip II. Mary had hoped to produce a Catholic heir through Philip, while simultaneously securing an alliance with Spain and the Catholic Holy Roman Empire, but the heir would never end up materializing. The marriage was deeply unpopular with every segment of English society. 
the Protestants were terrified at the prospect of a Catholic succession, while the Catholics were infuriated at a deal they perceived would make England a mere dependency of the Habsburg dynasty. In any event, Mary didn't have a child, and Philip spent barely any time at all in England. The only thing that was accomplished by this much-hated marriage was the loss of Calais, England's last holding on the continent to the French. But all of this maneuvering was merely the sideshow to what Mary and Paul considered to be the most important part of their program, the eradication of the heretics. Most of the Protestant leadership had fled abroad, but there were still those who remained, as well as the tens of thousands of ordinary Protestant Englishmen and women, who hadn't the resources nor the inclination to go anywhere else. Mary's church, under Cardinal Pole, Stephen Gardiner, and the Bishop of London, Edmund Bonner, cracked down viciously on those Protestants who remained. Throughout the rest of Mary's reign, hundreds of Protestants would be tortured and burnt at the stake, and a campaign of terror designed to beat the Protestants into submission. The persecutions failed to eradicate English Protestantism, and instead all they caused was a horror and revulsion held towards the church by the common people, a sentiment which was fanned and kept alive to this present day by the successful Protestant propaganda work of John Fox, who authored The Acts and Monuments, a description of the Marian persecutions in all their horrific details. The great majority of these Protestant martyrs were ordinary people, cobblers, merchants, tailors, or housewives, but there were also a few high-profile executions, and we're going to go through four of them, if only to give a sample of the sort of thing which was going on during the reign of Bloody Mary. All of the executions are described in all their gory details in Richard Fox's book, which we are going to quote at some length. These four executions are all executions of prominent men. As a matter of fact, these are the four most prominent men to be burnt for heresy during the Marian persecution. These men were John Hooper, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, and Thomas Cranmer. John Hooper was the Calvinist Bishop of Gloucester and Worcester. And yes, you heard me right, the Calvinist Bishop. Hooper was originally one of those monks who were tossed out of their monasteries by King Henry VIII, and he eventually served as the private chaplain of both Somerset and Northumberland. After a series of sermons which he preached before the zealous King Edward, he was offered the Bishopric of Gloucester. The Calvinist Hooper refused, however, on account of his vehement opposition to the institution of the episcopacy and of the priestly vestments, both of which smacked way too much of popery for his taste. It took several weeks of being thrown into jail before he finally agreed to be consecrated according to the Anglican rites. As I'm sure you can imagine, this fire-breathing Calvinist was not on Queen Mary's Who I'd Like to Hug Today list. On the 9th of February 1555, John Hooper was burnt at the stake in Gloucester. John Fox gives us a graphic account of his execution, which I'm going to read out here, if only to give you an idea of what a horrible thing being burnt at the stake was. Command was now given that the fire should be kindled. 
but because there were not more green faggots than two horses could carry, it kindled not speedily, and it was a pretty while also before it took the reeds upon the faggots. At length it burned around him, but the wind having full strength at that place, and being a lowering cold morning, it blew the flame from him, so that he was in a matter little more than touched by the fire. Within a space after, a few dry faggots were brought, and a new fire kindled with faggots, and those burned at the nether parts, but had small power above because of the wind, saving that it burnt his hair and scorched his skin a little. In the time of which fire, even as at the first flame, he prayed, saying mildly and not very loud, but as one without pain, O Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me and receive my soul. After the second fire was spent, he wiped both his eyes with his hands, and beholding the people, he said with an indifferent loud voice, For God's love, good people, let me have more fire. And all this while his nether parts did burn, but the faggots were so few that the flame only singed his upper parts. The third fire was kindled within a short while after, which was more extreme than the other two. In this fire he prayed with a loud voice, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And these were the last words he was heard to utter. But when he was black in the mouth, and his tongue so swollen that he could not speak, yet his lips went till they were shrunk to the gums, and he knocked his breast with his hands until one of his arms fell off, and then knocked still with the other, while the fat, water, and blood dropped out at his fingers' ends, until by renewing the fire, his strength was gone, and his hand clave fast in knocking to the iron upon his breast. Then immediately bowing forward, he yielded up his spirit. So, very pleasant stuff. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were the next to go. Ridley was the Bishop of Rochester, which was the bishopric once held by John Fisher, and he had helped Cranmer write the Book of Common Prayer, while Latimer was a prominent preacher during the reign of King Edward. They too were sentenced to burning at the stake, and were burnt together in Oxford on October 16th. Cranmer was brought to a nearby tower to watch the execution of his comrades. We turn again to Richard Fox to describe their final moments. A lighted faggot was now laid at Dr. Ridley's feet, which caused Mr. Latimer to say, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. When Dr. Ridley saw the flame approaching him, he exclaimed, Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit, and repeated often, Lord, receive my spirit. Mr. Latimer, too, ceased not to say, O Father in heaven, receive my soul. Embracing the flame, he bathed his hands in it, and soon died, apparently with little pain. But Dr. Ridley, by the ill-adjustment of the faggots, which were green, and placed too high above the firs, was burnt much downwards. At this time, piteously entreating for more fire to come to him, his brother-in-law imprudently heaped the faggots up over him, which caused the fire more fiercely to burn his limbs. Once he literally leaped up and down under the faggots, exclaiming that he could not burn. Indeed, his dreadful extremity was but too plain, 
for after his legs were quite consumed, he showed his body and shirt unsinged by the flame. Crying upon God for mercy, a man with a bill pulled the faggots down, and when the flames arose, he bent himself towards that side. At length the gunpowder was ignited, and then he ceased to move, burning on the other side, and falling down at Mr. Latimer's feet over the chain that had hitherto supported him. The final leader of the Reformation to be executed was our old friend Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer was arrested immediately following Mary's accession and charged with treason and heresy, but it took three full years before he was finally executed. You see, Cranmer was not a preacher or bishop like any other. This was a man who was considered, with justification, to have been the theological architect of the entire English Reformation, from start to finish. Simply executing him would not be enough. Cranmer would need to repudiate Protestantism first. The week before Cranmer was scheduled to be burnt at the stake, he cracked and signed a recantation of all Lutheran ideas, affirmed his belief in transubstantiation, and acknowledged papal supremacy and the necessity of the Catholic Church. He even attended and participated in a Catholic Mass. Traditionally, this was supposed to save him from execution, as heretics who recanted were generally absolved. The Church postponed his execution, but they were overruled by the vindictive Mary, who insisted that Cranmer must be made an example of and burnt alive, recantation or not. He had done far too much. His crime was unforgivable. The final date for his execution was set for March 21st, 1556. On the day of his execution, Cranmer was supposed to make his recantation public, and in turn, the church would offer masses for the peace of his soul. Cranmer arrived at the church in Oxford, which was packed to the brim by jubilant Catholics and grieving Protestants, all anxious to hear the final confession of this great figure. But if the crowds came expecting to hear the pathetic mewling of a beaten cat, they were treated instead to the heroic roar of a dying lion. Cranmer publicly repudiated his recantation and thundered against the Catholic Church, proclaiming before his stunned audience, And now I come to the great thing which so much troubleth my conscience, more than anything that ever I did or said in my whole life, and that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth, which now here I renounce and refuse, as things written with my hand contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death and to save my life if it might be, and that is all such bills or papers which I have written or signed with my hand since my degradation, wherein I have written many things untrue, and for as much as my hand hath offended, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished, for when I come to the fire, it shall first be burned. And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all his false doctrine. The Catholics had by now heard quite enough, and they forcibly dragged him out of the church to the same place where Ridley and Latimer were executed, chained him to the stake and lit the fire. Cranmer, true to his word, stuck his right hand into the fire and held it there until it was burnt to a cinder, proclaiming repeatedly, 
Oh, this unworthy hand. It was not long before Cranmer gave up his spirit and joined the pantheon of Protestant martyrs. For all of the brutality and ferocity of the Marian persecution, it achieved absolutely nothing. Outwardly, England was now fully Catholic, but the draconian reaction of Mary to the Protestants won more people over to the Reformed faith than all of the sermons of the past 20 years. Mary's heir was the Protestant Elizabeth, and there were hordes of radicalized Protestant Englishmen on the continent, awaiting Mary's death so they could return and restore the Reformed faith. Mary, who had ovarian cancer, and Reginald Pohl both died of the flu on the same day, the 17th of November, 1558. They both knew that they had failed miserably, and that from here on in, England would be lost permanently to the Catholic Church. This development would be firmly cemented into place over the brilliant 45-year-old reign of Mary's sister and heir, Queen Elizabeth I of England. We'll tear through all that next episode, and I'll see you then on From Settlement to Superpower. (laughs) 